I shared this with those of you who were here on Wednesday night. We had kind of a Wednesday night also. And uh, so some of you have heard this. It was given to me last Sunday, and I just, uh, it, it helped me, and maybe it will help you. I want to share it with you. It's a prayer. <laughs> Dear Lord, so far today, God, I've done okay. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> and from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Isn't that terrific? Well, what I want to talk about this morning is where our help comes from. Our help's not going to come from religion. In fact, religion is part of the problem. Religion talks about, sings about, preaches about, grace but religion doesn't practice grace it can't the very nature of religion is antithetical to grace because religion is something men do trying to earn God's blessing trying to earn God's approval A lot of Christians spend time R&R, and, R, and I don't mean rest and renewal. I mean rules and regulations. And they miss grace. I'm reading a marvelous book by my favorite author, Philip Yancey, his latest book on what's so amazing about grace. I agree with Billy Graham. I think he's the greatest, uh, the finest uh, writer in the evangelical Christian world today. And he has an excerpt in there from one of my favorite writers and the man I had the privilege of knowing and being with on a few, couple of occasions, uh, Paul Tournier. Glenn, you and I will remember when we were in Switzerland for the Billy Graham World Congress on the World Evangelization and we're having lunch at a little restaurant in Geneva and I just went in and said to the the operator of that little restaurant, I said, can you look up a phone number and a book for me? I cannot, cannot read your phone book. I'm trying to call a man by the name of Dr. Paul Tournier. I'd been with him at Laity Lodge and had the opportunity to meet him and know him thanks to Howard Butt and the marvelous ministry of Laity. And uh, he looked it up and I called him and he picked up the phone and I said, Dr. Tournier, he said, this is Dr. Tournier. Had a nice visit with him on the telephone. His book, Guilt and Grace, is one of the great books in my life. Uh, I have read it. I've marked it up so much I wouldn't even let you look at it. Uh, we have a couple of copies at least in our library. But in his book, and uh, Philip Yancey quotes from him, in his book, Guilt and Grace, the Swiss doctor Paul Tournier, a man of deep personal faith, admits, I cannot study this very serious problem of guilt with you without raising the very obvious and tragic fact that religion, my own as well as that of all believers, 
can crush instead of liberate. Tournier tells of patients who come to him, a man harboring guilt over an old sin, a woman who cannot put out of her mind an abortion that took place 10 years before. What the patients truly seek, says Tournier, is grace. Yet in some churches, they encounter shame, the threat of punishment, and a sense of judgment. In short, when they look in the church for grace, they often find ungrace. And that is a disgrace. D-I-S dash grace. It's a disgrace to the nature and character of God. The virus of fundamentalism, legalism, judgmentalism is perennial. It is always present. It's present embryonically in every church. And if you give it breathing room, it will destroy it. Religion. H.L. Mencken described a Puritan as a person with a haunting fear that someone somewhere is happy. <laughs> Many people would apply that same caricature to evangelicals or fundamentalists. Where does this reputation of uptight joylessness come from? A column from humorist Irma Bombeck provides a clue. In church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway said, stop that grinning. You're in church. With that, she gave him a belt, and as the tears rolled down his cheeks, added, that's better, and returned to her prayers. Suddenly, I was angry. It occurred to me that the entire world is in tears, and if you're not, then you'd better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with the tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God the happy God, the smiling God, the God who had a sense of humor, so much a sense of humor that he created the likes of us. By tradition, one wears faith with the solemnity of a mourner, the gravity of a mask of tragedy, and the dedication of a rotary badge. What a fool, I thought. Here was a woman sitting next to the only light left in our civilization, the only hope, our only miracle, our only promise of infinity. And if he couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? Where indeed? So ends the article by Irma Bombeck. 
Well, I know there are many Christians who embody grace. Many of you in this room do because you have communicated that to this community and through this church and to my life and the lives of many others. Yet somehow, somehow, through the history of the church, religion, church, has managed to gain a reputation for its ungrace. And that is a disgrace. Now I can talk about that kind of thing because that, that was a part of my life at one time. I didn't grow up in a legalistic fundamentalist home, but when I went into the ministry, I was trying to find out what you were supposed to do and how you were supposed to act. And, and I got down there to Baylor and I loved that place. And my goodness, uh, there's no way in the world I can be express my gratitude for all that God did in my life through that school. But I tell you what I ran into there, I ran into, into a lot of fundamentalism, a lot of legalism, a lot of judgmentalism. Fortunately, I ran into some other people who embodied grace, and they saved me, literally saved me, not in the sense of my eternal salvation, but they saved me in terms of my spiritual life, and they certainly saved me in terms of ministry. Because for a while, I... Uh, I thought that the, the best Christians were the ones who were against the most things. <laughs> well, that's, that was sort of the model that was somehow given, that, that you were a better Christian if you'd given up more things than, than other people. And some of you were old enough to remember the late 40s and the 50s. Well, it goes back a lot longer than that, but that is, is part of my biographical period of time. Um, you... You were not a good Christian if, if you danced. You were kind of a, they prayed for you. And uh, they talked about smoking, but they didn't talk about it a whole lot in the South because the South was making too much money off of tobacco. But every now and then, every now and then, you'd hear someone, you'd hear someone talk about that. Um, card playing. You can play 42 all night, but you're not supposed to play. You're not supposed to play cards, and you were not to, to go to the theater. Is evil, and I, and I tell you this is part of Martha's and my own spiritual pilgrimage. For about a period of a year, year and a half, we said we're not going to go to any movies. Any, even those that were good. I mean, we would have missed. Ten Commandments. Uh, we, we were not selective. We didn't say that one is bad, so I won't go, and this one's good, I will go. We just didn't go at all. We just thought, well, there's something else you can give up. So we gave up going to movies. You were supposed to be uh, against mixed swimming. How many of you remember those days? Yeah, okay. A lot of preachers would say mixed bathing. I, I've always thought that was a little different than mixed swimming, but <laughs> at least in my definition of those words, they're different. But I understand. I understand being being not in agreement with that. But mixed swimming, uh, makeup. Didn't wear makeup. 
Um, Tommy, you thinking some, some other? Can you think? Can you help me uh, further here uh, with some of those things that uh, you gave up? I, they, there were there were some Christians who were so devoted they even gave up mixed vegetables. They just didn't do anything. They just <laughs> they were so good they were good for nothing. And I was a part of that. And 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 then I began to run into grace, and it started saving my spiritual life and nurturing me. And what I have endeavored to spend, particularly the last 10 years of my life, concentrating on as much as anything I can in terms of reading and study on the incomparable, indefinable, incomprehensible, inscrutable, amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has grace greater than all our sins. Now, you just pile together all the sin in our hearts, our minds, our lives, our past, our present, all of us. Can you imagine what that looked like if all of us piled all of our sin, if all the world piled all of its sin together in one place? He has grace greater than all of our sin. And you know what he did? He took all the sin of the world, if we'll just let him have it, he took all the sin of the world and he put it in one place and he put a cross right in the middle of it and said, I'm going to die for all of this and I'm going to set you free. I'm going to forgive you of all your sins and all your transgressions. All of them. Grace and peace are Paul's two favorite words. Every letter he wrote either began with it or closed with it or did both. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Thirteen times, grace and peace over and over and over again. Grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading from Ephesians. Well, let me turn back to first chapter in the second verse. Paul, let me read the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. Not judgment and condemnation, not criticism, maligning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Second chapter, fourth verse, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his what? grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves even it faith is a gift of God not by works not by religion not by rules not by regulations not by all, taking all the stuff out of your life not by any of that no one can boast. We are saved solely, totally, completely by grace and grace alone. The Bible says, John writes us, as I read it to you earlier from the first chapter of John, 14th verse, the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the, of the only, of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen, my friend, Jesus is not just a revised standard version of Moses. Jesus is not just an updated Moses. Jesus hasn't come as a supra-Moses. Jesus hasn't come to just give us a new set of rules and regulations. He said there's just one thing. There's one thing and one thing only. That's the number one commandment. Take all of the ten and then all of the others in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Take all of them, roll them into one. Jesus said, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. One from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, and that's it. That's it. Love, love, love. It's the law of love, not the law of law. Not the law of law. There's just so many Christians. We have a hard time moving out of it. Uh, David Siemens, who's an outstanding counselor, wrote, I quote, Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these, failure to understand, realize, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness, and the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to others. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. Good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions and actions. Grace. The law of love or the law of law? Religion or Christianity? Religion is something men do or choose not to do, rules, regulations. Christianity is not a religion. I know in the literature of the world it's classed as one of the world's great religions, but it's not a religion. It's not a religion. It's not a religion. For religion is things men do or do not do. Christianity is something men become, something we are, not through our own, but through the incomparable gift of God's unconditional grace and love. The Bible says God is love. That's God's definition of himself. God is love. It's not, that is the number one attribute of God. That is the major attribute of God. God is love. You say, well, he's a creator. That's right, but he's a loving creator. You say, well, he's a judge. That's right, but he's a loving judge. The basic, intrinsic nature and character of God is love. Unconditional, agape Love. God is love. And the reason God gave the law was because he loved us. Love is an expression of God's law. God didn't give the law to satisfy an ego trip on his own part. God gave the law so life would be better for us. God's been concerned about us all along. The Ten Commandments were not given to ruin our party. The Ten Commandments were given so life would be wonderful. 
Forget God for a few moments and just look at the Ten Commandments and think how much better off the world would be if we just were to abide by those precepts. Take God out of it and just use common sense. Pure, simple pragmatism. Basic logic. If you don't kill other people, isn't life going to be better? If you don't steal from other people, isn't life going to be better? If you don't lie about yourself or other people or anything, isn't life going to be better? If you don't... If you don't violate the commitment you have to your husband and wife in your sexual life, isn't life going to be better? If you don't bear false witness, isn't life better? If you don't covet, isn't life better? Isn't it better if you acknowledge God? Isn't life better? Surely it is. The reason God gave the law was for our benefit, for life to be better for us. And he realized that all those rules and regulations didn't change people. So what did he do? He came in person. And so love is there for the fulfillment of the law. The love of God has come to do what the law of God couldn't do. And that is change our hearts. The law can change our external behavior on occasions, temporarily. But only love can change our attitude. Only love, the grace of God, can change our desires. Which will reflect themselves in a change of our actions. Law versus love. How do you make atonement for a, a broken law? If you break the law, how do you make atonement for it? Well, <clears throat> you, you pay the fine or you go to jail. I've used this illustration before. I think I'll do it again. If I were to be driving down the street, say I was going 31 or 32 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone, not paying real close attention, and a child were to run out from behind a parked car, and I, God forbid, driving that car would run over and kill that little child. I cannot think of anything worse other than being the parent of that child and to be the instrument of some horrible thing like that happening. But it can happen innocently, and the police would come. I may have been exceeding the speed limit by, you know, half a mile an hour or five miles an hour. That really doesn't make any difference. I may not have been, as the law says, maintaining proper lookout. I may not have been paying good attention. I may have been talking on the phone or listening to the radio or something. Just nothing intentional, not driving while intoxicated, but I say, Judge, uh, I'm, I'm, I did it. I, it was my fault. I wasn't looking. and I may have been going a little too fast. and So just lay the full penalty on me, whatever, whatever it is. And I don't know what it would be. I have no idea. But it's the point of what I'm talking about this morning. Suppose the judge says, okay, I'm going to find you uh, $200 and you're going to go to jail for three days. Okay. I go to jail for three days and pay the fine $200 and I come out. I have met the demands of the law, haven't I? I have fulfilled the requirements of the law. I pled guilty, knew I was, been punished. Therefore, everything's okay. Everything's okay, right? Wrong. I go down to the home, to the mother, and the father of that little child. And I say to them, I, I think I need to come tell you because I know you'll be glad to know that I have gone to jail. 
and I have paid the fine. And so we can let bygones be bygones, right? It's okay, right? No way. No way. So I can tell that I haven't impressed her, so I decide to demonstrate my penitence by crawling up and down in front of her house on my knees, praying out loud. Maybe that will convince her that everything's okay. So I do that, and my knees are bloody. And I've been in parts of the world where I see people doing that religion trying to gain the approval of God like I'm trying to gain the approval of that mother and I go up there bloody knees ruined clothes and I say it's okay now isn't it nothing I do can make it okay nothing Because I, as far as she is concerned, have not broken the law. I've broken her heart. And how do you make atonement for a broken heart? I know how you make atonement for a broken law. You pay the penalty. But how do you make atonement for a broken heart? You can't do it. The initiative has to come from the broken heart. That mother walks out of that house, whether I've paid the penalty, whether I've gone to jail, whether I've been fined, whether I've prayed, whatever I've done. That mother walks out of that house and walks up to me and says, because of the grace of Almighty God and the love of Jesus Christ, I forgive you. Not because of anything you have done to earn this forgiveness, but out of the goodness of God to me I forgive you and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did we broke his heart and he walked out the front door of heaven and came to earth and came out there and said get up off the sidewalk your sins are forgiven because I love you you're forgiven and all you can do is stand there and stammer and cry and clap your hands and say praise God I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. Your sins are forgiven not by being religious, but by accepting the incomparable love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. woman laboriously was climbing on a bus with a big heavy suitcase or two and had trouble getting up the steps and the bus was crowded every seat taken and she paid her fare and had to stand there and put her arm around a pole and an old gentleman got up to give her a seat like we used to do some of us still do but she was standing there, her arm around that pole, holding on to that suitcase, that heavy suitcase. 
bus went a little way and the bus driver could see her standing there kind of uncertain about her balance and holding on and holding on to the suitcase. The bus driver stopped and looked around and said to the woman, the bus will carry your baggage too. Put it down. My friend, the fare's already been paid at the cross. Get on Christ and put on your baggage. He'll carry your baggage too. And you know where you'll carry it? He'll carry it out into the depths of the sea and bury it and separate you from it forever. For by grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I'm not asking you this morning if you and I are religious if we consider ourselves good or better than others because we haven't done certain things. I'm not talking about behavior. I'm not talking about behavior. Jesus Christ did not come primarily to change our behavior. Don't misunderstand me. He didn't come to change our behavior. He came to change us. And when he changes us, our behavior will be commensurate. That'll happen. But Jesus always worked from the inside out. Religion tries to work from the outside in. That's the big difference. Works from the inside out. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In you. Is Christ in you? Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who though he was rich yet for our sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. Do you know that grace? Amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. That's always the invitation. So the only reason we ask you to join a church is because you already have joined Christ and you want to be a part of people who are trying to live gracefully. That's what the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to be a place where people live together gracefully, full of grace. Because we're all saved by grace. Not one of us has made it because we were good. We've made it because he is. He is. And so I ask you to trust Christ. You may want to join some other church in town. That's wonderful. Because the church is not going to get you to heaven. This church is not going to get you to heaven. You belong to everyone in town and it won't get you to heaven. Only belonging to Christ will do that. You belong to the church because you want to be with other people so you can encourage them and they can encourage you. We can learn from one another. We can share together with one another to help the world know about what kind of God he really is. That he's not a legalistic judge sitting on the throne. He's a loving Christ on the cross and an empty tomb with outstretched arms saying, come to me, come to me. Grace, grace marvelous, matchless, amazing grace. Will you accept it? I'll be right here to greet you. You may want to come and pray and return to your seat. You may want to come and kneel and go back to your seat. You may want to rededicate your life. Some of you young people, God may be calling you to go out and proclaim the gospel of grace. 
And Christian work, full-time, vocational Christian work, if God is calling it, it's his call. It's his grace. It's his invitation. It's his son in whose name I extend this invitation. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>